Listen, what I want to do this morning is take you to one of the greatest passages in all of the Bible on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want you to open in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be looking at some truth there that I have not spoken on. Some I have, but I I have not gotten to this spot, and I've been looking for a window. The theme of 1 Corinthians 15 is the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the day grave. I mean, it is certainly uh, the longest passage, the longest chapter in all of the New Testament, the Old Testament as well, um, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So important is the resurrection. Look at verse 3. Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with or to the scriptures. It's so important that he said, I delivered to you of first importance. I mean, because the resurrection is so central to our faith, it became the target of false prophets the target of false prophets then, and even the target of false prophets today. Some were denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at chapter 15 and verse 12. Paul says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you, he's writing to the Corinthian church, say that there is no resurrection of the dead. And he'll go on from that point to say that if Christ didn't conquer sin and death by virtue of his resurrection, then preaching would be void of any truth and void of any power. If Christ was not raised in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostles would be liars. They would be charlatans. I mean, if Christ was not raised, look what Paul said in verse 19 of that same chapter. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be, he said, pitied. I mean, if our hope is here, we're fools. If our hope is only in the here and now, then we're to be pitied. But we know that that's Not the case, because look what Paul said in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He has risen. And I bring you this morning to one of the great, therefore, passages in all of the New Testament. Glance your eyes down, and I'll read the text in a moment, at verse 58. Some of us know this, but sometimes we forget that it's linked to the resurrection. In light of the resurrection, in light of spending a whole chapter in 57 verses, Paul says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord 
knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You can circle that word in verse 58, therefore. In other words, in light of the resurrection, in light of what he's done, these are all over. It would be like in Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Paul in Romans 8 with what preceded in 1 through 7, we therefore now have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 12, Paul says, I beseech thee or I urge thee by the mercies of God, which is therefore I beseech thee by the mercies of God to present your bodies a holy sacrifice. And so we come to one of the great therefores in all of the Bible, and it really comes at the conclusion of Paul's thrilling text here to the, the resurrection in 1 Corinthians. Let me read for you the greater portion of the text, starting at verse 50, and remind you of this text, and then I'll focus in on 57 and 58. I tell you, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. And here's our focus. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's the text. And so rather, it's wonderful to do it, than looking at a gospel today that declares the events, gives the records, and he preached from that even this morning. I want to ask you today, what is your response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Maybe Paul is going to elicit, is probably what I mean to say, your response to the resurrection. What is it that you must do? I sat at breakfast this morning with one of our college students who's graduating in just a few months from a, a great school and asked him what he's going to do. And we were just talking about the next steps for him. And I was thinking about this passage, the next steps for him in light of the resurrection. I think, as we said this morning, he is risen. And we would say, what are we going to say? He is risen indeed. We're affirming that. But more than that, what are you to do with it? 
See, she's crying, that baby, that's good. But what are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And so allow me, allow Paul actually to look at two grand results of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And our future hope, here's maybe the, the grand purpose, brings present motivation. His resurrection ought to be a response, ought to invoke a response from you. And maybe I'll support these two grand results in a single word. One, thanksgiving, okay? And secondly, exhortation. But first, thanksgiving. He gets to the end of the chapter. This is your response. He says, does Paul, look at it again in 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, thanks be to God. He's emphasizing, as he said in the statement, our victory, ours even, over death and the grave itself because of Christ's resurrection. In fact, if you look back in 54, it says there, then the, the saying that is written, death is Here's our word again, swallowed up. It's swallowed up in victory. And then almost in the form of a song, he's quoting here Isaiah 25, 8. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I, I, I sometimes feel like he's going, nah, 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 nah. You, you know what I mean? He's just kind of giving a little bit, nah, 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 type of thing. In other words, death is swallowed up in victory. And death, where is it? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then you'll note in verse 17, the link there, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So thanks be to God. Thanksgiving is on Paul's heart as he closes out this wonderful section. I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter two. Think about the work of Christ that through death, it says he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So in his work, he, he's delivering us, as you can see there. He's delivering us from death itself. He's delivering us from the fear of death. He's, he's delivering us from the, being a slave all of our lives. His death removes the, the sting, if you will. His death grants the victory. It's a reason for thanksgiving. Listen, beloved, at death, the believer goes immediately into the presence of God, awaiting that future day of the physical resurrection at the second coming of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, I was just uh, what you were thinking when we were worshiping, but I was thinking about my dad in glory instantly into the presence of the Lord 
and waiting for either the rapture or the second coming of Christ to be given a new body. So beloved, what Paul is saying here to you, to me, is how can we do anything but give thanks and praise for what he has done for us in Christ Jesus? He, Christ, has promised us an imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body in exchange for one that is perishable, dishonorable, and even weak. He will give us a new body. I mean, for now, death is still the enemy of man, even for believers. I mean, it breaks love relationships. You know that. It disrupts families. It causes grief in the life of a believer. We, we suffer the loss of a, one who was dear to us. Maybe you have heard of the preacher of the old school. He speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though it'd be fair to say the world is his parish. He travels to every part of the globe. He speaks every language. He visits the poor. He calls upon the rich. He preaches to people of every religion and to people of no religion. The subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher ever could, sometimes bringing and many times bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none can ever refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name is death. His name is death. Every single tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And one day, apart from the rapture and the second coming of Christ, every one of us will be his message. But Paul says here, in light of the resurrection, thanks be to what? To God. Listen, we no longer need to fear death. At the return of Christ, the perishable, this, must put on the imperishable, the mortal, this, must put on immortality. Then will come the great triumph that Isaiah predicted when death, he writes it this way, is swallowed up for all time. Beloved, the war is over, amen? The victory is ours. And your response and my response ought to be this. Thanks be to God. Listen, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory, including babies, I believe. It is sown in weakness. 
It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. Thanks be to God. You say, how could, how does this work, Philippians? Paul said this in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21, speaking of Christ who will transform the body. He's going to transform it. The body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Okay? By, how will he do that? By the exertion of the power uh, to subject all things to himself. Because he's the king of kings, because he's the Lord of lords, because he's the first and last, because he's, you know, alpha and omega, that power that subjected the whole earth to the command of his voice will call believers out of the grave and he will transform you. In fact, scripture promises us a heavenly body in exchange for the earthly, the immortal in exchange for the mortal. You know, it's interesting. Glance again at verse 54, B, I guess. When it says death is swallowed up in victory, I would say to you, okay, swallowed up, you know, I don't know, we, whatever you think. It is a very strong verb. And what it's saying here is that death is swallowed up by a drastic and complete destruction. In other words, death is not merely level, but it's consumed in an absolute and total victory. Praise God. Paul says, thanks be to God. In Christ's victory over death, death's sting is removed, which means the sting, literally in the Greek, is declawed. The sting, if you will, is defanged. The sting of death is disarmed. And ultimately, the sting of death is destroyed. You will be made alive. Look over at 15, chapter 15 and verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, in Christ, shall all be made alive. Beloved, let me share this with you. And if you're a guest and you don't understand the gospel, let me say it this way. Christ died for your sins on the cross to those who know him. The sting of death is removed, meaning that there's no more condemnation for you. There's no more hell. There's no more fear. And though your body be laid in the grave, maybe, okay, Christ, at one day it will, unless he returns at his rapture, second coming. And though it be laid in the grave, Christ will come at the trumpet sound, and this mortal body will put on immortality, and this decomposing, decayed body will become imperishable. So Paul says, listen, here's your response. Thanks be to God. No wonder Paul said to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. It's gain for the believer. Or when Paul said, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 5, when he said absent from the body is to be what? At home with 
the Lord, okay? And on that day and in that day, Revelation 21, listen, he will wipe away every, what? Tear from their eyes. And then this phrase, and there shall no longer be any, what? Death. No longer any death. There shall be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. So listen, his victory is yours because of your union with him. So Paul is saying, thanks be to God. But Grace Church, being saved, being secured, doesn't mean that we put it on cruise control until death. Future resurrection is our incentive for service in the present. And I think I I wrote here in my notes, you need to get busy. You need to be about the, the work of the Lord. So the first grand result is thanksgiving because of his resurrection from the dead. And the second grand result is an exhortation to you. An exhortation to you who are here. I mean, this is a wonderful account, and we're joyful. I could hear it in your voices singing. But I've come to tell you, by the authority of the Word of God, you have a responsibility to God. You're accountable to God, and so am I. In other words, Paul gets done with 57 verses, and after he gives thanks, he says this. Look again and see it with your eyes in 58. Therefore... Because he is raised, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here, beloved, is the supreme motive for living today. It's because of the victory of the resurrection, okay? Now, this resurrection, therefore, is supported by four precious truths. And I'll be brief here. Four precious truths. First, and I'm reading from the ESV, he says, my beloved brothers, be, here's the first truth, steadfast. In other words, this is what you're to do walking out today, this morning, this weekend. You're to be steadfast. Maybe a translation says this, you are to stand firm. You are to set your feet. In light of the resurrection, you need to be permanently settled. You need to be, in a word, unshakable, steady. In other words, some scholars would think that it even means prove to be steadfast. Because it's a present imperative here. When I was playing college basketball, uh, sometimes we, it should have been all the team, were forced to take what is called a charge. It's where an offensive player, I'm on defense, is coming towards the rim. And often you have to stand in that place steady, at least try to put your feet on the ground. 
and holds your ground. And if he knocks you over, it's an offensive foul and it comes back to our team. I tried to take a charge one time, well, many times, sometimes successful. But one time playing at Grand Canyon, against Grand Canyon in Arizona, I tried to take a charge right in the middle, in the middle of the key. And I, I had my feet planted. I was settled. I was fixed until that 6'8 guy came through the key. <laughs> As he rose, I went to take the charge. I mean, it's a big boy. His knee went right into my face. Split my face open, like filleted almost. And uh, it was awful. It, I mean, it really was awful. And it was even worse that it was on TV in Arizona that night. And they're all looking down and blood's just pouring through my, my face. But here, listen. This idea of steadfast or to be steady or to be permanent or to be settled literally means I got moved by a force that was bigger than me. I went down quick. But we need to be fixed in place. We need to be steady. You say, on what? Be steadfast or be steady or stand firm on what? Look back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Here's on this chapter. He said, I would remind you, brothers, 15.1, of what? Of the good news, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. In other words, you stand positionally, but he's asking you young people to stand permanently. He says in verse 2, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. He's saying to us that our response to this is to stand, to be unshakable. I stand in the specific truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, I hear so many things he really didn't raise. It was really just a, a good story. There's all these theories. You could read books on them. There, there was the theory that he swooned while he was in the, the temple, and then he revived under all the, the wrappings, and, and on it goes. The, another, the guards, maybe Andy Red, you know, stole him, and they created a hoax. But listen, Paul says, oh, no, no, he's raised, Therefore, because he's raised, you need to stand firm on the gospel. That gospel that you heard preached, that gospel that you also received. And I would say to you, the Corinthians were being blown all over the place, Corinthians, the book, by every wind of doctrine. There were divisions in the church. The church was fickle. The church tolerated sin. The church was preoccupied with gifts. They were pre preoccupied with personality. There were conflicts in different camps. I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. And so they were being tossed all over. In fact, look at chapter 15. Have you ever noticed it comes in this text? Look at verse 33. 
where it says, does Paul say there, do not be deceived. And you go, oh, there it is. Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. He's saying, in light of the resurrection, I want you to be steady, high schooler. I want you to be steady when you go to university. I want you to be steady when you go to the Christian university and they still don't teach this. You heard the gospel. It was preached. It was received. It was believed by you. And he's telling you this morning, by the authority of the word of God, you need to stand. You need to stay in that place. You need to be firm on the resurrection. You need to be constant with this truth. You need to be resolute. You need to be unflinching. You need to be faithful to the gospel. So first he says, be steadfast. Secondly, look back at the text. He gives a a second way of exhortation to us. He says there, not only to be steadfast, you see that word immovable. If that first word was steadfast and stand, Yes, this word is you need to be immovable. You cannot be tossed maybe beyond the resurrection by every wind of doctrine. You need to be immovable. What your kids are learning right now is crucial over there. What they learn in junior high is crucial. What they're learning in high school is crucial. What Josh is teaching in 1824 is vital. And he says to the church and he says to us corporately individually you need to be immovable he said I delivered to you of first importance in 153 what I received that Christ died for our sins how do we know that according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised that word immovable is interesting can I show you the only other place that it's used look over in the book of Colossians or maybe it comes up on the screen There it is. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, and here's the word, not, there's the word immovable, shifting, same word, from the hope, that future hope of the gospel that you heard. In other words, beloved, I encourage you today as I encourage my own heart, be steadfast, be immovable. A.W. Pink said immovable, it's interesting, is a word implying testing. It's the idea you're going to be tested and you need to be immovable. It's the idea of facing opposition. Suffer not, Pink said, the allurements of the world, nor the baits of Satan to unsettle you. You could be unsettled as I speak. Be not shaken by the trials of this life. Be patient and preserving, if you will, whatever your lot. Say of all your afflictions what Paul has said in his imprisonments, none of these things move me. Don't be moved. No matter what the opposition you encounter, notwithstanding your discouraging failures, the backsliding of fellow Christians, the hypocrisy of graceless professors, hold your ground. I I hear people say, well, I don't go to church anymore. Well, why don't you go to church anymore? 
Well, because all the, you, you would know the refrain, all the people at the church are what? Hypocrites. Hear it all the time. But listen, not you. Certainly we're not perfect at Grace Church. But Christ is perfect. Christ never sinned. He's the sinless one. But don't let that affect you. Don't let people or family or grandparents or children make you move. You stay immovable. Okay? That's the thought. In fact, he says here, be steadfast, immovable, thirdly. Look at it. He says, well, it says in 58, always abounding. Abounding, you know what abounding means. Just look at the King's River. (laughs) That's abounding. Just look at the ditches and the gulches and so forth. Abounding is exceeding requirements. It's overflowing, literally the word. It's overdoing it. In fact, the word is used, that word in Ephesians 1.7, to speak of our redemption through Christ, his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace to which Paul said he lavished upon us. He lavished his grace upon you. He gave you grace upon grace in redeeming you. And because of the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable. And then it says, look at the text, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You're not just getting by. You're not just scraping to come at Easter. If you believe and I believe and if we sing and if we preach, you, he's not talking to pastors here. He's not talking to elders. He is, obviously, he's talking, but he's talking to all of us. That because of the resurrection, you need to be overflowing, exceedingly overflowing, always overflowing and abounding in the work of the Lord. Now you say, what's the work of the Lord? Well, it's a broad word. It's a broad meaning. I'm not just doing the work of the Lord here. This is an aspect of it, but it's much broader than that. Maybe it's this in Colossians 3.17, that whatever you do in word or deed... Do everything, what? In the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you say, whatever deed, you're to do in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for what? The glory of God, the work of the Lord. Let me show you something. 2 Corinthians, okay? This is our response Go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 where he, he will say that here and I'm addressing, illustrating biblically the work of the Lord. Uh, you should look at this at Grace Groups this week. Family Bible studies that whether we are at home or away, here it is again I think. We make it our aim to what? To please him. 
This is the work of the Lord. For, here's the reason, for, guard clause, we call that in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You say, well, who's, who's he talking about? He's talking about us. You know that. This is the judgment seat. This is what we call the Bema seat. This is not the great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation that's a judgment to the unbeliever. But we will stand before the Lord. You will stand before the Lord. I will stand before the Lord. Look at it again. He says, we will all, all of you. You say, well, not me. I'm just a Christian. Well, what does that mean? If you're a believer and you're affirming the resurrection of the grave and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you will stand before the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a judgment of rewards, we call it. You say, well, for what? Look at verse 10. So that each one may receive, interesting, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In some measure, in some ways, as we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, you will give an account for what you've done. Certainly, it's all going to be grace, and certainly there's no condemnation. Certainly, he's going to wipe away every tear, which one scholar says there will be tears that he'll wipe away. But you'll stand before the Lord, and I will. And here's what Paul's saying, and I want to encourage you. You are always abounding in the work of the Lord. What's he called you to do? Probably different than what I'm doing, praise God. But he's called you to something, and Paul says you're always abounding. And I take that to be, don't be passive in this life because of the resurrection. Don't be passive with your family. Don't be passive with your habits. Don't be passive in holiness. Don't be passive in attendance here. You cannot have no work, okay? That's the, he says here, you need to be abounding. You can't keep on sinning because of the resurrection. Therefore, he goes on to say, listen, because of the resurrection, be always abounding in the work of the Lord tirelessly. Is this you? Like, I love the resurrection. We're going to rejoice in it. We're going to sing today. It's fun to be in this place. But has it ever occurred, and maybe it has, that because of the resurrection, thanks be to God, and then because of the resurrection, there's an exhortation here to work, be abounding in the work of the Lord tirelessly. Or have you become like my car, with intermittent wipers in the rain. I hate those things. You know, you, you turn them on, and I don't know why, mine always go, Aah! it's like this, somebody's scratching the windshield. Aah! I probably woke up a kid here. Um, and they're intermittent, and then you forget about them, and then you're driving along, and then, you know, and it scratches the window again. And I think we can become intermittent in service intermittent in worship, intermittent in witnessing what Paul is saying here, beloved, to us, for to the redeemed is always abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen, this is not fear-based. Do this because 
This is not works-based. This comes out of a full heart that can say with Paul in 57, but thanks be to God. These works are the result of salvation. They are not the means of salvation, but good works are the evidence of a genuine living faith. This is an exhortation of the scripture to us. God has been so wondrously gracious to us, has he not? We should be, fair, so overflowing in our service to him that because we owe everything to him, what can we render to him for all of his benefits to us? How can we, this is okay to me, How could we, and I meant I was writing it to me, go on cruise control and be satisfied with the trivial when a resurrected body and the glory of heaven await us? Listen, beloved, there is a sea of unbelievers in the state of California and around the globe in need of the gospel and edification, and we're called to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, amen? You, you probably remember it by heart. I'm just thinking about it right now. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. It could be broad, but what is it that you're doing? And I know so many of you are serving. Praise the Lord for that. But he's created us for these good works. So don't be a lazy Christian. Don't be a retired Christian. What does that mean? Man, I was at the Shepherds Conference a few weeks ago. It just almost seemed like they dragged John MacArthur up to preach the last session. 83 years old, just had four stents put in his heart about six weeks ago. And he's up there on Zachariah uh, for an hour and 10 minutes. Unbelievable. But he's not retired. You, You can't say I'm all done. Maybe somebody's watching me even on live stream and physically they can't come. You could, Andy, we were talking about that, have the most important ministry in the life of our church and that's to pray. To pray for myself and Andy and all of the pastors to pray for our ministry. You you say, okay, abounding in the, the, the work of the Lord, why? Look, it's the last statement. Go back to 1 Corinthians You say, why though? Well, there it is in 58. Knowing. Knowing. In other words, you you grasp something. That in the Lord, your labor is not in what? Vain. I love that. It's not in vain. In fact, look back at 1 Corinthians 15, 14, where Paul says, if Christ has been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. But here, because of the resurrection, knowing that as you always abound in the work of the Lord, your labor, your laboring to the point of exhaustion is not vain in the Lord, in this sense, that there's a reward laid up for you. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. 
You say, well, Scott, what's that? It's the beam of seat judgment. You say, what's that? You're going to stand before the Lord and you'll give an account for what you've done in the body, good or bad. And out of that comes service in the kingdom. You say, well, I've, I've never heard that before. It's right there. It's in 1 Corinthians 3. Go read that. Some things are going to be, you know, precious stones and silver, and some things are going to be wood, hay, and straw, but the fire is going to reveal it. But we'll give an account, I'll give an account for my life. But he's trying to encourage us here that every ounce that you spend for people this week, every meal you make, Every gift you give to a new home, every way that you help a believer, every seed that you drop in the gospel towards somebody, your work, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You're taking care of aging grandparents. Your work is not in vain in the Lord. Pastor, you do the upfront stuff. I'm just behind the scenes. Your work is not in vain in the Lord. And so Paul is reasoning with us because of the resurrection, you need to make this count. Now let me say this. Some of you here, some of you need rest. Because I've talked to some of you, you're doing like five or six ministries. And I said, maybe you ought to drop back on a couple of them, okay? So always abounding in the work of the Lord, some need to be more focused. But some of you are not serving at all and you need activity. And you need to pray, you need to look at the back of the bulletin, you need to, maybe it's something that's near and dear to your heart that you've desired to do and you haven't done and you need to be active. Somebody said, you've heard me say that in Ephesians 4, that the local church is like a professional, professional football game. There's 80,000 people in the stands that desperately need activity They're watching 22 men down on the field who desperately need rest. That's how it goes. Sometimes 20% are doing all the service and the other 80 aren't. But listen, I say this to, to compel you, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So here's two grand results, Thanksgiving. Here's exhortation. Death is swallowed up in victory, therefore... Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, abounding, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor means kapiao to the point of exhaustion is not in vain in the Lord. Listen, I want to close with something for you. I think I've read it once before, but I, I didn't know how to close it other than this kept coming back to my mind and to my heart. It's a testimony of a young man from Zimbabwe. And I want to read you what he wrote. And may his prayer be our prayer. He said, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Spirit's power The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't back up, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. 
I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small plannings, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. He said, I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I lean on his presence. I walk by patience, uplifted by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my, my way rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander at the, may, or, or, or meander at the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. He said, I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go on till he get, I, I must, must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach to all who know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. End of quote. Is your banner clear? Ah, Scott, I'm growing. Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm growing too, okay? I'd have to tell you as I close here, one final thing. One of the saddest things for me, it, it, it may be the saddest, is when I'm at funerals, sitting, when pastors give comfort to unbelievers by using Bible text addressed to believers. I want you to know that everything I said here today is addressed to believers. Because he said, therefore, my beloved, what? Brothers, sisters. This is for believers. The hope is for believers only. Death has no power, no sting to those who know Christ. And I just am asking you, do you know the Savior? May it be that this would be the day that you'd come to Christ. Because you'd be, I say this graciously, a fool to not trust the gospel. And whatever the world promises you, some of you, you know that it just fizzles in your hand. But we have hope not only in this life, but in the life to come. But you must bow your knee, repent of your sins, and come to the Savior. Amen?